Hebrews chapter 10 a little bit. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 a little bit. Um, there's a story that I like to tell. It's, a, it's an ancient old Hindu folk tale. And it's about a, a mouse. And the mouse goes to the, the Indian guru that's in charge of all the animal kingdom and can grant wishes to the animal. So the mouse comes and he says, you know, I'm tired of living in constant fear of the cat. You know, I'm always worried about the cat. I don't like being a mouse. So the magician said, fine. Poof. Made the mouse a cat. So the cat went scurrying off. Later, it came back to the magician and said, listen, now I'm afraid of the dog all the time. This is no fun being a cat. You don't like being a dog. So the magician looked and said, fine. And turned the cat that was a mouse into a dog. Soon after that, the dog comes, presents himself, and now is complaining, saying, you didn't tell me about that tiger out there in the, in the wilderness. That tiger's ferocious. I'm living in constant fear that the tiger, I have to kind of stay indoors all the time. I can't run in the woods anymore. When I was a mouse, I could scurry around, be unnoticed. So the magician said, fine, and turned the dog that was a cat that was a mouse into a, into a uh, tiger. Soon after, the tiger comes back and is trembling and worried about the hunter with the gun. The magician said, fine. Poof. And turned the tiger that was a dog, that was a cat, that was a mouse, back into a mouse. And he said, I turned you into the greatest of all beasts of India, and yet you still think like a mouse. If you're going to think like a mouse, you might as well be a mouse. Be gone from me. So <clears throat> we're always taught Sunday after Sunday about our new identity in Christ, who we are in Christ, your new identity in Christ, to where it almost becomes a catchphrase. And it's hard for us to grasp these realities. And 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 give us a hint of how we kind of tap into this and glean from it and are strengthened and upheld from it. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verses that we've read so far, I like where, where Paul kind of starts summing things up. He spending, spent all this time talking about, okay, you're worried about the high priest. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ. You're worried about sacrifices and tangible things. We have the ultimate sacrifice. And he proves that Jesus went and sacrificed himself once for all time. And you see that phrase in, in Romans 6, 7, and 8. You see it here, once for all. It's translated in the NIV. And what it is, it's, it's, a, it's a verb tense that's in the Greek language that we don't have in our language. What it means is that something that began in eternity past is happening now and will continue into all eternity. The aorist tense, A-O-R-I-S-T, in case you don't understand. Aorist, I say things and I don't pronounce them correctly. The aorist tense, 
The closest thing we have in the English language is what's called the past perfect tense. It's an event that happened in the past. It's still happening and it will continue to happen, right? I have been married to Carrie Ann for 20 years, right? Have been. It, it happened. It started. It began in the past. It's happening now and it will continue, but it's, it has an end. So the aorist tense is an eternal tense. So what God has done for us once for all is for all eternity. We have to think about God making up his mind about us. When did he make up his mind about us? That he was going to love us unconditionally. At the cross? When you behaved yourself? When you accepted Jesus? No. It says in Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, God loved us and blessed us and set his heart upon us. God never had to change his mind about mankind. We always had to change our mind about God and who he is. Always. That's the, that's the lesson in the garden. Adam and Eve ran and were afraid, and they had no reason to be. It was their own guilty conscience that Paul talks about in Hebrews chapter 10. They were naked. Well, they were naked before, and it was, wasn't no problem. It wasn't a problem. All of a sudden, that becomes an evil thing. No. There's this idea that is more of a Western church idea that God's just so angry with mankind that he had to change his mind and that Jesus, you know, got on the cross and got between us and God. No, it was us that were changed, that needed to be changed at the cross. That's what Romans chapter 6 says that we changed. We were crucified with Christ. We were buried and raised up a brand new person. So I'm going to go through a, a review, two things that we've read and studied so far, but they're these realities. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, it talked all about Christ coming to sacrifice himself and the willingness, willingly giving himself up. In chapter 10, it says, and by that will, we have been made holy through the blood and body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, holiness is one of that one of those terms that got hijacked by man's religious flesh, right? To be holy means you don't do certain things and, and you do other things. And that, has not, that holiness is not some aesthetic lifestyle. If you want to do that, that's fine, right? People abstain from certain foods. They don't do things. But that's not what holiness is. Holiness needs to be set apart and that you belong to God. Everything that's holy belongs to God. And in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, God made us holy once for all. But I believe that he, 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 like this whole world is God's. Now I know we look around circumstantially and we see a lot of evil and a lot of craziness in the world and we say, well, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Well, if he's a prince, a prince has a king that's in charge of him. And God is king of this world. And this world, this whole earth, everything, the universe is holy unto God. It belongs to him. It's his. Now, he is in control, but he's not controlling. <laughs> he's not controlling. That's obvious. 
you look at everything that happens, God is not controlling. Free will is something that he has done to really love us unconditionally and prove his love. So although he's going to have the final say in all of history, the trajectory of all of us has a wonderful, beautiful end. And in the end, it is a good and benevolent universe that we live in, right? Because of what Christ has done, he's, he's won the victory. He's done it all. As Tony Campolo points out, we're in between D-Day and V-Day, right? Once we hit the shores of Normandy, everybody knew it was done. The war's over. We're, we've won. If we were able to do that, we did it. It was just a matter of time in those battles. Okay? We're living in the middle of God bringing all things under Christ's control, under his power. So if we've been made holy, we've been made holy once for all. We can't improve on that. <laughs> We're not going to make ourselves more holy by doing this, that, and the other thing. And then in verse 14, it goes on and says that we've been made perfect forever. Made perfect forever. Well, that's absurd. One of our favorite things to say about ourselves, well, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And here we have God saying, you've been made perfect. How is that so? That seems absurd. Well, we'll get into that in a minute. But I want you to think about, again, you trying to do for yourself what God says he's done already. Say that we were all here now and we are we are art experts. We know everything there is about art. We're historians. We've studied art. And right there, we have a picture of the Mona Lisa on display for everyone to look at and say, man, that's the original Mona Lisa. And I'm standing before, I say, hey, that's the Mona Lisa. Isn't that great? And I get out my paint kit, dab a little paint. I said, but I just think it needs a little something right here. Right? Now, if you are true art experts, you'd get up and tackle me and stop me. Why? Because the Mona Lisa is perfect. And Bob George says, trying to make yourself perfect is like trying to put a mustache on the Mona Lisa. Right? You can't do it. You can't add to perfection. So if God says he's made us perfect, what, is, what does that mean? Well, John introduced it last week. He said, well, all these things are to be lived out by faith. One of the struggles that we have, that man's always had since the beginning, is what God has done to us is he's done something. We've changed internally. Right? Spiritually, we've been made alive. Spiritually, we've been joined to Christ. Spiritually, now we have the Holy Spirit living in us. The struggle has always been, how do we walk that out? What does that look like? And the church mistakenly made the mistake as, oh, well, it's our job to tell people how to do that, when to do it, how long to do it. And they come up with their own. I mean, Christian, Christian when we talk about the church, it's a very broad term. But when you look at the institutional church and the history of the church, well, no, you have to do it this way. You have to get baptized in water. Then you have to only listen to Christian music, only do this, that, and the other thing. Whatever it is, I mean, you know there's a list. I think we've all been through it. I mean, I did it to myself. I said, well, I'm going to be a great Christian, and here's what I'm going to do. 
And then I went to church, and they helped me along with that and added things. And in the 80s, it was being a good witness for Jesus to go out and personal evangelism. And if you're not personally evangelizing people, you're letting people go to hell. Rubbish, right? But it was a performance-based thing to prove. There was a preacher that wrote this book, and it was all about the TV is an idol. Put the TV out in the garbage. And people did that, and they said, oh, therefore... I'm holy. I'm good. I did what God wanted. There's all sorts of things that we struggle with. How do we walk out this gospel? Now, Jesus did simplify it for us. But I think it's like, you know, like people say, well, that's too simple. That's too good to be true or whatever. He says, love one another. That's it. Period. You, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love one for another, to love each other. So to answer the question of holiness... To be holy, if God is holy, and holiness is being God-like, and God is love, then loving people is being holy. You're being holy when you love other people, when you love one another. Now, Paul, in, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter, he starts in chapter 3, 4, and even into 5, he, he begins, he talks about the glory of the new covenant, because Paul mentions it in Hebrews chapter 10, and we, we've been talking a lot about the new covenant. I think the last time I was here, I talked about the new covenant in detail, that we are under a new covenant, not under the old covenant. And one of the biggest problems the church has and we have as individuals is we mix the covenants. And the old covenant has no place in our life. We live and move and have our being under the new covenant. So Paul is contrasting it, and he ends up the argument... In 2 Corinthians 4, um, verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. So Paul gives us a hint at how do we truly believe that we're a new creation in Christ, dead to sin and alive to God. How do we believe that we've been joined to Jesus Christ inseparably, that we've been made holy, that we've been made perfect? He says... By fixing our eyes on the unseen and eternal realm. Being dead to Christ, being dead to sin, I mean, <laughs> being dead, buried with Christ, and being raised up with Christ, being seated with Christ in heavenly places, being made holy, being made perfect forever. These are unseen realities outside of space and time. And they are realities. That's God's reality. That's how God sees things. He does not see things the way we do. They're true outside of time and space and outside of this realm. And it's the only realm that God operates in. To him, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years a day. So we fix our eyes, Paul says. There's a man by the name of Dan Stone. He wrote a excellent book called The Rest of the Gospel. 
And it was kind of a play on words. If you want to read a good book, The Rest of the Gospel by Dan Stone. And he said the only illustration he ever used, the only visual aid he ever used in his teaching was a line. He would draw a line and he'd say, above this line is the unseen and eternal realm and below it is the temporary and the seen realm, right? And then he would divide the two. And when we look at that, if you look at this passage, Paul is telling us the word there, fix, fix our eyes on, the unseen and eternal, the word in the Greek is skopia, right? Skopia. And it means to take aim at, to spy and scout out. So it needs to be our laser focus. We fix our eyes on the unseen and eternal realm. So that every morning when we wake up, because we can't make it happen, it has happened already, we don't say, God, make me a new creature in Christ. We don't say, God, make me dead to sin. He's done that already. We say, God, thank you that I'm dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. God, thank you that I'm a new creation in Christ. Thank you that you've made me perfect forever. Thank you that you've made me holy. Thank you that I am the apple of your eye. I mean, those are things that God is telling us is true. And it's not pride and it's not presumptuous to do that because it's very humbling to do that because we can't make our own way. <laughs> we cannot make our own way. People will often say, you mean that... What do you mean Jesus is the only way to God? I said, well, there's another way. I said, live perfectly. Don't ever sin, ever, not once, not even in your thoughts. Be perfect like Jesus Christ. And then, you know, you might have a shot. Right? I mean, it's, it's humbling to really humbly receive. That's what James said. James said, he said, you know, humbly receive the word planted in you that can save you. Right? It's, it's, it's humbling to say, you know what? There's no way. I can't produce an ounce of righteousness on my own. I cannot live the life, the righteous life that God requires. Ever. I am a beggar and I need the bread of life. So to thank God for those things because he's told us that he's done it already. He's told us over and over again that this is what I've done for you that you couldn't do for yourself. So it begins with thanksgiving. Thank you, God. Thank you that you've done that. Now notice that one of the things that the unseen and eternal separates is the flesh and the spirit. He goes on later on in this whole argument in chapter 5, of 2 Corinthians, he said, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And in, verse, in, in chapter 4 that we just read, he said, Outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. So one of the things that unseen and eternal realm, the dividing line that Stone talks about, and the unseen and eternal is the spiritual you, your true self, who God has made you to be in Christ. That's 
who you are, that's in the unseen and eternal realm. Down here, we're looking at our flesh, our sin-cursed bodies that are falling apart, that are breaking down. We're, our emotions are part of the seen and etern- the, the seen and temporal realm. So below, the, we have our emotions, we have our performance, <laughs> we have our thoughts, we have all this stuff going on in the seen and temporal, and we're looking at that and saying, how can I be a new creation in Christ? Instead of looking at the unseen and eternal realm where God says these things are absolutely true. And I'm telling you they're true. And we have to spy it out. We have to scope it. We have to take aim at that truth. And we take aim by giving thanks that he's done it already. Thank you, God, that that's true. Now, it also... The unseen and eternal realm separates us from our circumstances and from our performance, right? There's this greater reality. Look what Paul says. This is from verse 4 of chapter 4. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, right? Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So the dividing line, the unseen and eternal realm, there's this greater reality that's always happening from what our circumstances look like. And sometimes our circumstances are painful, they're difficult, we have no idea how we'll even get out of our present circumstances or our present pain. And what God is saying is that is not the greater reality. The greater reality, he says, that these light and momentary troubles, I always hear in my mind, I always think of those cigarettes back that my parent, the L&Ms. Remember the L&M cigarettes? I don't know if they're still around. But... I mean, I grew up with that. I mean, there was a time when cigarettes were advertised all the time. I'd be watching Saturday morning cartoons and I'd see cigarette commercials, right? They're not allowed to do that anymore. So I remember the L&Ms, the light and momentary troubles. So when things are going berserk around you, go smoke an L&M. This is just light and momentary. But look what he says. I mean, he calls them light and momentary troubles. And he says, the glory that's going to be revealed, the greater reality of what's going on even now in the eternal realm far outweighs anything, any pain that we can suffer. And we don't know. Romans 8 says basically the same thing, that God is working all things together for the good. When our circumstances are painful, we don't know. We don't No, we do not see with the human eye or feel with the human emotions what God is doing in the eternal realm. But he's promising us that he's working all things together for the good. And not only that, that there's this eternal glory that far outweighs anything that's going to happen here. That's the greater reality. That's the unseen and eternal. And we don't know what God is doing. We really don't know what he's doing. We cannot be bitter or angry against what he's allowed. It's easy to do that, but the reason why we can't is because there's this eternal reality. 
there's this, this unbelievable trajectory that we are all headed that we can't wrap our mind around it. I'm reading a book right now, it's called The Cosmic Egg. Weird title, I know, but it's really about, and, and he's, it's very scientific, quantum mechanics, all the rest of it, and he, he's doing his best to put it in layman's terms, so <laughs> some of it I have to, I'm like, what is, but basically he looks at everything in creation and even the, uh, from the atomic level, and he says, that, he says, the idea that science and God are incompatible is ridiculous. He says it's the most ridiculous thing that he's ever heard in his life. That if you really, really study science, you see the miracle of God. And one of the things he said is that they've been studying, they, they look at the atom, which is the smallest unit. And he, that he goes from atom to organism to all the way through the planets up to the universe, right? So, but he says that the atom really, when you look at it, is a miniature solar system all in, in and of itself. And as they studied it, they were like, okay, well, the reason why our solar system works the way it does is because of gravity. So it must be gravity that, you know, the, the atoms must operate that way. But the more they studied it, they said, nah, it doesn't. And they call it a strong force that is holding all things together. Now, this gentleman who wrote the book capitalized strong force in all capital letters, meaning that it's God. This strong force, if this strong force was not holding all things together, everything would go like this bench and all of us would just go flying out into the universe into nowhere. And it's not gravity they've discovered. Now we know from Colossians that it says that in Christ, all things hold together. All things hold together in him. So there's this miracle and God says, that, well, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. The universe is still expanding. The possibilities of what lies ahead for us after we leave this sin-cursed body and this sin-cursed, the possibilities are endless. There's just, it's mind-blowing when you think about it. And what Paul is saying here, that's where we're headed. So if you look at that, any kind of pain or suffering that we have to go through, I remember when, when my son died, I did, there was no way out for me. I was like, I'm never going to survive this. I told Grace, I lied to her. I said, Grace, I love you. We're going to get through this. We're going to survive this. We are going to do whatever it takes, and God is going to bring us through it. I didn't believe that, but I knew, you know, Grace was the youngest and most vulnerable. There was no way. And, but I remember God starting to say, listen, just... You don't have to do this the rest of your life. Just do today. Just get through today. Try to get through today. But I remember thinking about all of this because I, mean, I, I read the Dan Stone book probably 20 years ago. Right? I've been teaching and helping people. Went, uh, conducted funerals and would witness to future glory for the, for the hurting folks. And here I was. I remember thinking, okay, God, if I live with this pain, I was, I think, I was like 57. I'm 57, Liam's dead, so I have to live with this pain. Ah, what am I going to, maybe another 30 years, if I'm lucky? 
Maybe I'll live, what if I live till I'm 100? You know, that's, that's another, what, 43 years? All right, so if I have to live with all this pain like this for another 43 years, what is that in the light of eternity? What is that? That's like, that's a blink. That's not even a blink, right? And I started imagining, hey, Frank and Flory, how are you? I haven't seen you in five billion years. How's your mansion over there, right? I mean, like, we only can measure things right now in time. We don't have any idea of eternity. And so, but, I mean, I started thinking, like, okay, Grace, come on, Grace, we're going to go visit Liam in his mansion over there. I haven't seen him in about 600,000 years, you know. It's been a while. I mean, I, I, so I started thinking of those things because that is only a, a glimpse. It's us trying to imagine. I mean, if you talk to John Glenn for any amount of time, when he talks about eternity, like, like he talks about it like just matter of fact. And it's, this is, I remember saying, John, you know, I'm, you know, like this one, there's a big theory out there that it's just the resurrected earth and everyone lives on the new heaven and the new earth. How's everyone going to fit on the new heaven and the new earth that ever lived, that ever, you know, that died and are saved and billions and billions of people from the beginning of time till now? How is that going to happen? John just looks at me and goes, well, a billion people can fit on that couch right there. What do you mean by that? Like, and he just said it like, you know, he's, he's been there and no, I was like, what? What do you mean? He goes, listen, he goes, eh. He goes, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. He goes, you know, we can have, you know, maybe there's, maybe each family is going to have its own planet. You don't know. Like, you don't know because the universe is expanding, right? And if there's nothing outside the universe, then where's this expanding to, right? So the possibilities are endless, and that's what he's telling us here. That whatever's going on circumstantially, there's this eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And in the Greek language, that far outweighs them. You know the measuring scale that the chemists use? I heard that it's like putting an elephant on one side and a feather on the other. Right? You know how Paul says that it's not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us? So the dividing line also separates our performance, our circumstances from this greater reality that God's talking about. We are citizens of a better kingdom. And Paul will get into that in chapter 11. But it also, the last thing is that it really separates or illustrates the difference between separation, being separate from God, and union. Separation and union. Right? When we look down here, and we're told that Christ lives in us, that the Holy Spirit lives in us, that Christ walks with us, we, where? Right? But there's this greater reality. The fact where John said, John reports in John chapter 14, verse 20, that Jesus said, in that day, you will know that I am in you, I am in the Father, and you are in me that we're joined to Christ, that there's this mystical, spiritual union that we have. Where do we see that? It's an unseen and eternal reality. And that's where we're to fix our eyes. I mean, if God is not outside of the universe, because it says that he fills the universe, 
and Paul said that in God we live and move and have our being, it's not, and if God is everywhere and everything and he's not there, but he's not here, but he is here and he is there, you know what I'm saying? Like God is permeates everything. He owns everything. So if you were to take a sponge and go put it over there in Lake Okeechobee, the sponge is in Lake Okeechobee, but the water, Lake Okeechobee, is in the sponge. Right? So we're joined to Christ that way. We've been included in Christ. We've been baptized into Christ. We've been made one with him. So the eternal realm, the eternal glory, the unseen and eternal realm is where we're to fix our eyes. And we can look all around us circumstantially, say, man, this stuff is not true. You look at your performance, your feelings, this can't be true. If I was a new creation, I would act better. God never says that. Never says. In fact, Romans 14 says people are going to all look different and act different walking out their faith. Don't ever compare yourself to someone else. Say, well, I should be more like them if I was a Christian. Paul said that that's not wise, but that's not what God wants. He wants you to be you. He wants you to be you so that he can be supernaturally creative in your life, in the natural, the real you, your real self that he's created to be like God in Christ Jesus. So I want you to think about the significance of your calling as we close. If it says that you've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer you that lives, but Christ that lives in you, what does that mean? Well, that means that you, as God's beloved child, as his creation unique, you, as God's child, are going to express God's life and love in a way that's never been expressed before since the beginning of time until now. He doesn't want you to be somebody else. He doesn't want you to act a certain way. He doesn't want you to try to say, well, this is how I should act. He wants you to have that relationship with him so that he could express that life through you, through your personality, through your quirks, (laughs) through your failures. He doesn't waste anything. He wants to live with you as you And he wants us in on the fun and joy of loving other people. So being crucified with Christ, raised up with him, and it's you, the life of Christ in and through you, you are going to express the life of Christ in a way that's never been expressed before. Is only being expressed now through you and will never be expressed again until all eternity, right? Because he's made you. And he loves you just the way you are. And he's made a way through Christ to set us apart, to make us holy, to own us. And his promise is he's going to take our hand. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. And he's going to get us to that point when we leave this earth and are with him once for all. Unless... what we all long for unless he comes back then we'll all be transformed instantly but remember it's not your flesh that's going to inherit the kingdom of God your flesh stays here in the ground it's going to die 
A lot of people think, well, I don't know. I don't know about inheriting the kingdom of God or going to heaven. And they're thinking that their flesh is going. Your flesh ain't going. Not at all. Don't think that. You're going to realize your true self. Whether you believe in them or not, there is a, a profound statement. Um, John Burke wrote a book called Imagine Heaven, and he was an atheist, and he started talking to people about near-death experiences, and then he studied the Bible, and he realized how everything lined up. And he, he wrote the book, and there was a girl that was, she was a drug addict. She left her Christian family and went and, you know, fell into the pig pen like the prodigal son, and she, she overdosed and died. And she said that she was with Jesus and the angels for a short period of time. And she said, the first person that I met in heaven was me, my true self. She said, it was me. It was really me. I can't explain it, she goes, but I met my true self, who I really was in heaven. So our false self, our flesh, staying behind. The real you, who God created to be like Christ, will be finally separated from this sin-cursed world and sin-cursed body and the unseen and the eternal. And that far outweighs anything bad or wrong that happens here. So we'll close in prayer and we're going to thank God for what he's done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Father, we thank you.